Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon or wish to make a one-time donation, please visit the show PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. If you wish to sponsor the show or have any other questions or feedback, please reach out to me at HPOPodcast at gmail.com. All right, folks, we're back for another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast, and this is episode two of our Dietitian's Dilemma series. So I'm joined with my uh, series co-host, uh, Michelle Hearn, who's a registered dietitian, as a lot of you probably already know, and our special guest today to come in and dissect the topic of kind of mental health and that side of things and chat a little bit about where the role or if there's a role for low-carbohydrate nutrition in the mental health space. So we have uh, Dr. Chris Palmer joining us today to, to kind of break that a bit, a bit, break that down a bit. So Michelle, welcome back. Uh, Dr. Palmer, actually, now that I think about it, Dr. Palmer, welcome back as well, because you were a guest on the show for episode 164. So folks who want to do a deep dive into what Chris, Chris is all about, we got an episode already in the hopper for you on that one. So if you haven't listened to that, make sure you check that one out as well. But uh, welcome and thank you for taking some time. Michelle and, and Chris. Yeah, thank yeah. you, Zach. Thank, yeah, no, thank you both for uh, having me on the show. Uh, pleasure to be here. Awesome. Yeah, I think uh, this series has been fun so far, even though we're only on episode number two. <laughs> but I, I really am <laughs> excited about about this after the first one and just our, the way that I think it'll it'll provide some resources for people who are interested in looking into low carbohydrate nutrition and, and what all it works for. Because I think, you know, for me specifically, sometimes I get a little too probably focused on myself and like kind of, well, what is the applications of like a low carbohydrate approach for me personally and what I'm trying to do. Uh, but then, you know, when you kind of take the time to look around and see it more holistically, you see a lot of different reasons people are using it and a lot of uh, kind of just variance within that. And it's just a, a pretty wide open field at the moment. Yeah, yeah no. absolutely. Uh, so I was going to say, yeah, it's, it, um, it's actually a really exciting field and, uh, obviously I'm excited about it, but, uh, it's, it's a really exciting field because a lot of researchers in the neuroscience space and the psychiatry space are, um, increasingly interested in this and they're interested in particular in the science of it. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of people are focused on diet and they kind of get into these wars and battles about healthy diet and unhealthy diet. And, you know, as long as you avoid unprocessed foods, then, then it, you know, that'll confer health. And, you know, for me, that's not actually what this is about at all. Um, you know, I'm certainly very interested in health and I'm interested in, um, you know, understanding which foods 
can confer health and which foods can maybe not be so good for us, like unprocessed foods. But, um, but we actually have a tremendous amount of science. And as a psychiatrist, the basis of it really all stems from a really obvious common sense observation, which is that the ketogenic diet is now that we're in 1921, uh, or 2021, uh, the ketogenic diet was developed in 1921 um, for the treatment of epilepsy. And it's been used for a hundred years now. Um, it, uh, so the ketogenic diet can stop seizures when all else fails. So even when people have tried numerous medications, when they've tried surgery, when they've tried other things and their brain is still seizing, the ketogenic diet can stop their seizures. And we have a tremendous amount of evidence for this, including a Cochrane review, multiple studies. So anybody you know, who uh, understands and respects medical science and medical research needs to understand that this is an evidence-based treatment for epilepsy. And as it turns out, we use epilepsy treatments in psychiatry on a daily basis. We use anticonvulsant treatments all the time because things that stop seizures can also help with a lot of psychiatric symptoms. So some of them are FDA approved and some of them are off-label use, but we use these things all the time. And you know, for any listeners that are skeptical of you know, a diet to treat something like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, um, I fully understand and appreciate. A lot of people are skeptical of that when they first hear it. And so the first thing that I usually try to point to people to is this is an evidence-based treatment in neurology, and we use these all the time in psychiatry. And so this is no different than that. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate that because I think people, I think the only way we're going to get um, like kind of the, the mainstream science, kind of get healthcare on board is we're going to have to have those clinical trials. We're going to have to have that more research and more evidence before we're able, before it becomes standard practice. I was so curious, Dr. Dr. Palmer, what I actually um, transitioned to a low carb, high fat diet. I initially just like lost my health. All of a sudden I was having incredible muscle pain. I couldn't run. Um, and I'd struggled with anxiety and depression since I was much younger. I'm uh, 37. I had a severe eating disorder when I was 12 and for you know over two decades had severe, severe anxiety. My mom is bipolar. And I was just told like, this is just kind of the card you're dealt. Like we can, we can help you manage the symptoms, but it's never going to get that much better. And when I, for a short period of time, you know, I went very, very, I'm a zero carb, very high fat, high protein. And within three weeks, my wife, who's been with me now for 12 years, came up to me and said, this is the best your anxiety has been since I've known you. Like, and so, I mean, I think the greatest testimony you can give is your own. And, you know, in the book, we've got pretty much everybody in there says, you know, my anxiety was better. My, you know, I'm able to manage life better. And I was just, I would love for you to talk about insulin resistance in the brain, because I found it fascinating that you can have zero signs of insulin resistance in the body. Because like you said, most people kind of know on a general level, like, okay, if I reduce sugar in the diet, maybe I have some, that, that, that might be better for me. I might be a little less depressed. I think we have some, we have some studies saying that like eat less sugar, you might feel a little bit better, but you could be even eating a whole foods diet, a higher carbohydrate diet and still suffer from insulin. If you have insulin resistance in the brain, you may still have a lot of those mental health system, um, symptoms. So could you speak a little bit to that? I'm just, I find this fascinating. 
Yeah, no, it's it's a great question, and it's a really hot topic in the research community. Most clinicians aren't aware of it, but in the research community, it's an ex- it's an exploding field. Um, and and so the first thing to point out is that um, you know people can so number one, insulin receptors are actually located throughout the brain, and they seem to do. Um, many different things. They're not just about, so in the rest of the body, insulin receptors as a rule of thumb, allow glucose to get inside cells. And so when people are insulin resistant, insulin resistant, that glucose can't get into those cells. And so paradoxically, even though levels of glucose are high in the bloodstream, the cells actually aren't getting enough fuel because that uh, glucose can't get into those cells. Um, because insulin is kind of like the key that unlocks the door to the, the, the glucose channels. Um, in the brain, we think that some of that is happening in some of the cells, but in other cells, it seems that insulin is actually more of like a, a signaling molecule. So it really is kind of like a hormone or almost neurotransmitter for some cells. And um, interestingly, it's not a universal effect in the brain. So some cells are actually turned on by insulin, while at the same time, other cells get turned off by insulin. So it ends up being an extraordinarily complicated kind of puzzle to put together. We've only really, researchers have only really taken insulin um, seriously for the brain function for like the last 20 years. We've kind of known that insulin receptors were there, but nobody thought too much of it. They just assumed that, oh, they, who knows why they're there? Who cares? But insulin can't play a big of a role in the brain. Um, But uh, so this is an exploding field and it has wide ranging ramifications for all sorts of disorders, including Alzheimer's disease, but also of particular interest to me, people with chronic depression, people with bipolar disorder, people with schizophrenia. Um, and uh, as far as we can tell, there's a high likelihood other disorders are also impacted, um, post-traumatic stress disorder and others. Um, the, the really, the paradoxical thing is that people can be thin, they can even be athletic and still have this insulin resistance going on inside their brain. So on the outside, you can look at them and think, well, that person's fit. That person doesn't have diabetes. They're not overweight. They, they can't possibly have insulin resistance, but in fact, they can. And we, we have good evidence that many of them do. Um, there was a, you know, there, there's a lot of controversy in the field. And um, we just had a really important research paper published in the literature a couple of weeks ago um, that I wrote about. And so one of the controversies in the field is that a lot of psychiatric medicines cause insulin resistance. They cause weight gain and they can cause diabetes. So mood stabilizers and antipsychotic medications in particular. So there has been this longstanding confusion in the field and debate in the field that, well, the reason everybody with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder have diabetes or get overweight is because we're giving them all these medicines that make them gain weight and make them diabetic. And that is true. We do give them those medicines and those medicines do contribute to it. 
the research that came out um, just recently, but we've, we have, we've had several studies now that suggest it's not so simple, that people actually seem to have this insulin resistance from day one before we even give them one pill. And the research that just came out a couple of weeks ago um, actually followed children from essentially from age one until age 24. And they actually measured their insulin levels um, throughout their childhood. And they also measured their weight throughout their childhood. And what the researchers found is that when insulin resistance starts at about age nine and persists throughout childhood, those children are dramatically more likely to develop a psychotic disorder, which usually means a diagnosis of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. And could and that like, also mean major depression though, or like generalized anxiety disorder? It, so so in, in this particular study, it did actually um, double the rate of depression, but, um, but the, because of the sample size, it wasn't a statistically significant difference. So, um, and double the rate is, is pretty dramatic. <laughs> yes. so, so a lot of people are probably wondering, so what did it do for psychotic disorders? It actually increased their risk for psychotic disorders fivefold. That's 500%. And by the time these kids turned 24, they were three times more likely to already be diagnosed with a psychotic disorder. What the, what the same researchers found is that for people who gain a lot of weight, especially around the time of puberty, they were four times more likely to develop depression by the time they were 24. And wow. so what we know is that depression, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia um, are preceded by insulin resistance and dramatic weight gain. And that essentially really, at least this one research study, which was pretty rigorous. I mean, they took over 24 years to do it because they were following these kids longitudinally year after year. So it's unlikely we're gonna get another study like this to confirm it anytime soon. But, um, but what this research strongly suggests is that the insulin resistance comes first and then the psychiatric disorder comes next. So let me just uh, try to summarize Dr. Palmer and make sure I'm kind of uh, like understanding properly is uh, if we're looking at it like that, almost regardless of whether the insulin resistance is driving it, if it's showing up in that frequency, is it safe to say, at least based on this one study, that if you see that, then it may be something to be as a, like a precursor to watch out for what could come next? Yes, absolutely. So I actually wrote an article um, on psychology today about this exact topic. And, and in that article, I actually strongly recommended that parents um, find that out, that, that parents actually pay attention to their children's BMI, the body mass index, um, that they also pay attention, especially if they have a, his, a family history of mental illness, that they pay attention to insulin levels and, and signs of insulin resistance. And if they see that, that they should try to intervene if at all possible. And um, so at a minimum, you know, we don't yet have concrete studies that say that that will help prevent mental illness. 
We don't know for sure. Um, so these were correlations. We can't prove causation based on that kind of research, but, um, but they certainly suggest it based on when you put it together with all of the other research in the field, it strongly suggests that insulin resistance might be driving this. But at a minimum, even if it doesn't prevent mental illness, we know that it will likely prevent long-term obesity, diabetes, and all of the you know, comorbidities that go with that. So, um, so if somebody is insulin resistant at age nine or at age 13, parents should be taking that quite seriously. It's not, you know, a lot of people look at young kids and they're not thinking about diabetes. They're not thinking about cardiovascular disease yet because, you know, they're young kids. They're, they have steam. They'll run it off somehow. And it's actually, you know, my, my thinking is, no, you, you may be setting them up for a life of chronic illness, potentially including chronic serious mental illness if you don't do something about it. Yeah, Dr. Palmer, one thing in reading your research, I was really surprised that, you know, obviously I, I know the rates of um, uh, suicide and the rates of death of despair are increasing, but the rates of bipolar disorder among children increasing 4,000%. Like that makes me wonder. And I'm wondering, you know, if a low carb, high fat diet, um, we know that can be very effective as far as like treating diabetes, you know, and I know that's something you're looking at certainly for this, uh, this type of disorder. Uh, and it's interesting because I do think, especially I know as a young person, there's just so much shame around, you know, I feel depressed. I, I, you know, certainly if you're dealing with psychotic symptoms, you know, I've worked in two different psychiatric facilities and I've had one had, you know, adolescents, one had children, and they just express this incredible shame often. Like, I don't know why I can't think myself out of this. You know, I've tried these different medications. This is the second time I've tried to attempt suicide. So what are your thoughts around a um, very low carb, high fat diet, even for maybe potentially people who are younger, like teenagers, and then into adulthoods for people dealing with mental illness? Um, so, it, you know, at this point, I think that you know, we, we don't have enough research to be able to recommend it as a standard practice, um, for better or worse. That's one thing that I'm working on is, you know, trying to get more research in this field. Because, you know, the, the reality is that our current treatments, so if we were to put those children on mood stabilizers, if we were to put them on antipsychotic medications, the reality is that we know from the overwhelming amount of um, research that we have that follows people with our current treatments is that these are chronic lifelong disorders that if anything tend to get worse over time, they usually do not get better. Now that's not to say some people don't go into remission. Some do. Um, some people have short episodes and go on. Some people are not disabled by their illness. I'm certainly not here to shame people or further stigmatize mental illness but I'm here to like speak the truth and the truth from rigorous psychiatric studies that follow these people longitudinally is that our current treatments are failing far too many of them. So we need new ways to think about this. We need new ways to intervene. And the dietary intervention is available today. 
And uh, um, it's not going to cost a lot of money. (laughs) Wait a second. We can start a low carb diet today. (laughs) Go on, go on. We don't have to wait 30 years for a new genetic therapy to be developed or a new medication to be developed and approved by the FDA or anything like that. So these things are available today. Um, and I think that, again, if somebody's showing signs of insulin resistance, we know that is not a good prognostic sign. Um, and, you know, f- not just for mental health, but for physical health. And so, you know, finding a dietary pattern that reverses that is really important. There's no question in my mind, low carbohydrate ketogenic diets can do that. Um, are they the only diets that can do that? No, some, some, you know, pe- this is where people get into the diet wars and, you know, <laughs> oh, vegan diet or vegetarian diet or Mediterranean diet. At the end of the day, I say, well, find a diet that's going to reverse it. Don't ignore the warning signs in front of you. So if, if, this, if this person has insulin resistance and is persisting, or if they can't, if, if the Mediterranean diet isn't reversing their symptoms, or if other dietary interventions aren't reversing the symptoms, I think you really need to put all the different options in front of the patient and in front of the clinician and, um, and you need to keep trying different things until you find something that works. The reality is the American Diabetes Association has now come out and acknowledged in their 2019 guidelines that low carbohydrate eating patterns are the best studied way and the best proven way based on research to lower blood glucose levels and to improve insulin resistance. So that comes from the American Diabetes Association. And again, this is based on the best medical evidence. These are not anecdotes. This is not fringe. This is, this is legitimate medical stuff. The other interesting thing I always think about when it becomes like a, a topic of like, well, we have other ways to do this as well, or like just the diet wars in general is like, if we're talking about say the Mediterranean diet, the vegan diet or the veget- vegetarian Mediterranean vegan diets, you can do those low carb. <laughs> you don't, you can have the best of both worlds, so to speak, or, or at least both worlds, so to speak. And, uh, um, and, and take that route too, if you really want to, it doesn't have to be quite as narrow channeled as I think sometimes we, we are led to believe when we're on social media and trying to figure out whether I should do like, say a vegetarian diet, a ketogenic diet and all that other stuff. I, yeah, no, it's, that's an excellent point. And I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, I, uh, I know a physician who has type one diabetes, who manages her type one diabetes by doing a vegetarian ketogenic diet. Um, I know another guy who actually sells ketone supplements, but he's a vegan and he does a vegan, <laughs> he does a vegan ketogenic diet and his ketones are like in the five, his beta hydroxybutyrate is in the fives. And so you know, he does it very effectively and it, it's working for him. And so I think there are lots of ways to mix and match dietary patterns and choices, you know, whether those choices are based on food preference, whether they're based on religious reasons, moral values, whatever. Um, I do think we have to work with people and respect their choices. And, res- and But again, at the end of the day, 
respect those choices, but still come up with effective solutions. I'm a yes. Of let's come up with something that actually works. Yes, thank you. Yes, I, I love, I, I worry, I, I echo Zach's worry that sometimes we can get too dogmatic. And of course, you'll see me today, you guys, if you're watching YouTube, um, I'm wearing my shirt. I'm, I'm a big fan of animal-based proteins. I think they definitely, for me, had a big, um, you know, there's so much B12, folate, zinc, iron, and animal meats. But if somebody wants to be a vegetarian, uh, you know, gosh, even if somebody wants to try veganism, I, that's not my recommendation. But I really do think it comes down to, can, if you can make it work, can you keep the carbohydrates low? Can you stay in ketosis? Can you get adequate protein? And are you not going to get you know, macronutrients and micronutrients blocked with, um, you know, certain uh, anti-nutrients like phytic acid and tannins and things. And that's why I think we, I think we have to be able to have those conversations with people, because I think if we're just, if we're so dogmatic that we say, this is the only way to do it, we're going to eliminate, um, we're not going to welcome everybody. And that's why I really hoped in my book, it was like, let me give you the best that I know. Let's start with this foundation, this low carbohydrate, higher fat foundation, and then let's make it nuanced to depend on your lifestyle, right? Like, um, my mom, I shared the beginning of this, um, has suffered with bipolar disorder for most of my early life. She was went undiagnosed and now, I mean, she's in her sixties and for the first time, you know, now that I've went on this <laughs> low carb, you know, diet, she, she's tried it with my dad. My dad has no mental illness, but has been overweight his whole life. And for the first time, you know, she's starting to see some reduction in symptoms, you know? And so it's just amazing to me that like, somebody asked me, I was on another podcast and Dr. Tony Hampton actually asked me how different would your life had been if you're, you know, when you're growing up, if you're a mom, if this had been an option, this low carb option, because I'm a big fan that, um, I'm not a moralist. I'm not anybody's mom or dad or, you know, parents and all married to one person. But even then, you know, we all get to make our own decisions, but can we present this as an option? you know, for our psychiatric patients, if they, if they lack capacity, which a lot of, you know, high, high, high acute psychiatric patients potentially lack the capacity to make mental decisions. Can we present this to their guardian? You know, um, I, I just, I want there to be the option. I want to have the discussion versus like you said, let's just immediately put them on medication and for lack of a better term, kind of doom them potentially to a life of, of depression, anxiety, um, and, and suffering. So The Dietitian's Dilemma podcast series is made possible by our friends at S-Fuels. S-Fuels is both Michelle and my workout, recovery, and lifestyle product of choice. They don't leave our carb-craving friends hanging, but make sure they stay true to their roots by boasting a wide range of low-carbohydrate products to help anyone make low-carb living and performance much easier. Personally, I like to lean on their S-Fuels Life Mix and Revive in my morning coffee, just to give me a little bit of extra fat fuel and protein to start the day. There are life bars I'll turn to when I need a protein packed snack on those higher energy demanding days. Their S Fuels Train product when I need a bit of extra fat for a long workout. And their Race Plus to help keep liver and muscle glycogen topped off on my harder, longer efforts. You can check out their full lineup at sfuelsgolonger.com. That is S-F-U-E-L-S-G-O-L-O-N-G-E-R.com and enter promo code ZACHB5, that is all caps, Z-A-C-H-B, the number five, for 5% off your next order. Thanks for tuning in, and now back to the show.
Dr. Palmer, one thing I was interested in with this topic specifically, and I could be way off base here, but I kind of had this thought process that I wanted to ask you about where when I think of just like my experience coming from moderate to high carbohydrate to a lower carbohydrate approach to nutrition, one of the things I noticed very quickly outside of any performance type metrics that I was gauging was I went from kind of like this scenario where when I was moderate, high carbohydrate that, you know, I'm on this kind of bit of a roller coaster throughout the course of the day where you're kind of going up and down, up and down from your energy sources. So I ever felt like I was like really humming on all cylinders, or I felt like I could just take a nap at any moment. And I'd go back and forth between that. And when I switched, I noticed like, uh, I kind of was just a little more even keel, like I wouldn't have these really massive spikes and I wouldn't have these massive dips following it either. So it's just like a little more like predictable, a little more sustained energy, in my opinion, uh, from my own experience. And my thought is that if you had someone now, you know, I have no mental disorders that I'm aware of. And, uh, you know, so I have a fairly tight channel of probably my highs and lows, especially relative to someone who does deal with some sort of mental, mental situation. Is it something where like, when you have someone who does have like, say a bipolar disorder and their highs and lows are going to be a massive extreme compared to mine, that when you get them on that blood sugar roller coaster, that they're just going to have like these much more volatile spikes and dips than say someone like myself would have? It's a great question. Um, I, you know, so for bipolar disorder, I would say Bipolar disorder usually doesn't cycle that fast. Mm -hmm. um, so, so most people, you know, if, if they're in a depressive phase of bipolar disorder, for instance, they, you know, they might have some fluctuation in their mood throughout the day, but they're not going to feel like normal or high when they eat a lot of sugar and then crash back into depression when they're withdrawing from that or, you know, or, you know, hypoglycemic or whatever. Um, so, so with bipolar disorder, I would say, you know, the mood variability is really measured in weeks or months, not really minute by minute or hour by hour, like it would be with a dietary intervention. But again, we come back to this issue of insulin resistance and, um, and, uh, and that, relates directly to what we call metabolism. And metabolism is actually influenced by all sorts of things, including people's sleep, including, you know, drugs or alcohol that they might use, including stress, um, including the season, the time of year. So it's really classic for people with bipolar disorder when, you know, when the fall comes, a lot of people with bipolar disorder will get depressed. Um, as the winter comes on. And then when spring comes, that's kind of a classic period when they'll become hypomanic or manic. Um, and, and so these things are all influenced um, by a wide variety of factors, um, including diet. But I think diet is just one of many pieces of the complicated puzzle. Yeah, you know, I've interestingly, I've had several people tell me they feel like since, you know, switching to, you know, an animal based, uh, low carb diet that they feel either their anxiety or even episodes of depression have improved dramatically. And do you think like kind of like Zach, just to piggyback on his question, could that also be potentially from stabilizing, you know, energy? Because I do think even 
maybe if you even aren't diagnosed having anxiety or bipolar, or I'm sorry, major depression, just having that highs and lows throughout the day could be over time can, um, can be really challenging and can also potentially, you know, impact like neurotransmitters in your brain from what I understand. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, no. So there's, there's no question in my mind that a ketogenic diet can be, you know, there's no question in my mind, it's not based on rigorous randomized controlled trials. Cause that's what I'm working to <laughs> facilitate. We'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, the reason I say there's no question in my mind is because I've seen it firsthand in patients that I've worked with. And there, so there's no question that um, a ketogenic diet can be a very powerful mood stabilizer. And it can also be a very powerful antipsychotic treatment. And I really look at it as a treatment, similar to the way neurologists look at it as a treatment for epilepsy. Um, and it's not necessarily to say that eating carbohydrates with the ups and downs of the blood sugar is ultimately the cause of bipolar disorder or depression in everyone, because I don't think it is at all. I mean, I think I could, I could take anybody who is stably on a ketogenic diet and I could make them depressed if you gave me ultimate power. I could ruin their life. I could take away their loved ones. I could take away their money. I could put them in a prison. Um, I could torture them and they would become depressed. They just would, even, even if I left them stay. <laughs> you know? um, uh, keto wouldn't be enough to save that person. And so I, I really do believe there are lots of different factors that go into psychiatric disorders. But I think for some, um, these dietary interventions can be really powerful treatments. And we know from the neurology literature that they do actually stabilize neurotransmitters, that they do actually stabilize brain function. They stabilize metabolism throughout the brain so that all of the brain cells are getting appropriate energy at the right time and, and that they're just, they're firing on all cylinders. And what we know from an abundance of literature is that um, in people with untreated bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, or even just poorly treated, so even if they're on medications, but the medications aren't really working for them, we know that their brain metabolism is quite impaired. Um, and we have decades of research showing that, that brain metabolism is impaired. And so lactate levels can be elevated um, and all sorts of metabolic problems can happen. And so the way that I look at the ketogenic diet is, you know, at least in the work that I'm doing, I look at it as a metabolic intervention. I don't necessarily look at it as like the one and only one diet that everybody in the world should be on from birth until death. But I look at it as a metabolic intervention when metabolism isn't working right. And, um, and so it can correct brain metabolism, but as we, as we discussed, it can correct a lot of other things like diabetes. Diabetes is a metabolic problem in, throughout the body and, um, and it can correct that. And so I think, it's, um, I think it's a really exciting treatment. And again, we've got I could go on and on for hours about all the science that we have to support it. Because, and when people ask, like, well, so what's the one mechanism of action? You know, we've talked about, we've talked about glucose and insulin resistance. There are actually many other mechanisms of action that are equally possible. Um, and we have a, a fair amount of science, like the gut-brain connection and the microbiome and levels of inflammation. 
Um, all sorts of things are happening when people are on a low carbohydrate or ketogenic diet, or when they're fasting or doing intermittent fasting. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's always interesting. I think we talked about a little bit about that topic too with, uh, with Dr. Westman, just in general, where, and this kind of goes back to what we were chatting about before too, where you kind of get into these, like uh, these arenas where you start thinking like there's one way to do something. And I think like, you know, part of the contention around say like the dietary recommendations is that people see that and they think it's like, this is a recommendation, meaning this is the only path forward for me. When in reality, it's, it's more of a, here are a variety of different options that you, you, that can lead to health, whether it be physical or mental. Now we need to kind of get down to figuring out which one is going to be a sustainable approach for you after weighing in kind of what are the upsides and downsides of this type of dietary trend versus another dietary trend. And I think when we can get to that point where we're looking at these all as tools versus like which one's better than the other and more into the department of which tool is best for this particular task for this particular individual, then we're kind of heading down the right, the right pathway in a lot of this stuff. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, and Zach, I know you've talked about this in, in the work that you've done and some of the talks that you've given. I mean, your example is a perfect example. If you're running a marathon, you might actually take in some carbohydrates um, because your body needs those or your body is going to perform better when you're running ridiculous, you know, uh, distances. Mm -hmm. um, Whereas if you're not running, you know, a, a super marathon, you may not be taking in carbohydrates. And so you're, you're fueling your body, you're providing your body with what it needs when it needs it at different times. And, you know, human beings are the same way. It's like this recommendation that everybody should be on a Mediterranean diet. And that's, you know, that's like the perfect diet. And, and there, that should solve everything is actually really ridiculous because we have, we have a lot of people who are overweight or obese and they need to lose weight. That means one way or another, they do need to be in a calorie deficit. And that usually in, in my mind, I'm a huge fan of let's control their hunger and satiety signals and, you know, low carb, ketogenic, carnivore, you know, can do that for a lot of people. Um, but, uh, but then you've got the opposite end of the spectrum where you've got frail elderly people who are wasting away from cancer or from just old age and they don't have enough muscle mass, we might need to feed them more. We want them to gain weight. We want them to gain muscle. And then you've got kids who are growing and thriving. Infants need a different diet than teenagers who need a different diet than a 20-something-year-old. And the 20-something-year-olds need different diets depending on if they are running marathons or depending on if they just sit and play video games all day. And, uh, and so, you know, to think that there's a one-size-fits-all diet for all of humanity is really absolutely just kind of asinine. <laughs> so first of all, Zach, I propose from now on, we call our, uh, anything over a marathon, a super marathon. That's my new favorite <laughs> term. I love that. Yeah. That That's sounds awesome. better than ultra marathon. That sounds that way cooler than ultra marathon. <laughs> I love that. And Dr. Palmer, I think that's such a good thing. I've actually, you know, on my, um, social media, I had somebody reach out to me who, um, was struggling with anorexia, really very underweight. And this person was, this young lady was so convinced that the only way for her to eat was a completely animal-based zero carb diet. 
And if she didn't follow that, she was going to be sick. And I just, it really made me have to take a step back and say, I want to make sure that when I'm advocating, you know, you know, I'm a huge fan of a low carb, high fat diet, but just like you said, it is a tool. You always need to take a step back and say, what is my goal? Like for me and Zach, you know, when we're running, you know, 30, 40 miles at a time, our goal in our nutrition is very different than somebody who is 400 pounds and trying to lose weight. Just like this young lady who needs to gain weight, her goal, her number one goal is weight gain. So, you know, that is an instance in my mind where you need more calories and you need more carbohydrates, you know? So we have to be, I think we have to be careful while, well, a low carb, high fat diet can have a lot of benefits in my mind. And you obviously you've read my book and I think everything from diabetes to eating disorders to mental health. I think we also need to make sure that we take a step back and say like, what is my number one goal? You know? Yeah, exactly. And, um, and everybody's different. And that means we just, again, need to use common sense, clinical sense. And, um, you know, and for people struggling with really serious disorders, you know, one of the things that I'm really hoping to be able to do before I die, uh, I'm hoping that'll be a long time away from now, but um, I'm really hoping to change the medical profession as I know you are, um, you know, right now as a dietitian, you're not allowed by law almost to, to recommend certain things to certain people. Yep. And, um, and for the most part, there are almost no hospitals. There really are probably no inpatient hospitals that I'm aware of in the United States that offer this treatment as an option to people with treatment resistant psychosis or treatment resistant depression or bipolar disorder. And I really want to change that. I want to expand our toolbox. I want to, I want to give people more options. Why? Because I believe that this can be a much more effective option for at least some people. And they deserve that. And far too many people are suffering and, and our current treatments aren't working for them. So I'm all about like, let's broaden our base. Let's, let's develop more tools. Let's understand them better. Let's understand who needs what. Um, and then use them. Um, so yeah, hopefully we'll get there. Yeah, I totally hear that. And I think, you know, to me, it makes so much more sense. Like, let's say you're, you know, you're a teenager or you're a young adult. And, you know, when you're looking at options, a lot of times people try a lot of things. They try medication, it's failed. They try some therapy, maybe they feel a little better, it's failed. But like, what do you, what do you have to lose by saying, okay, well, for, you know, four weeks or 30 days, we're really going to go all in on a ketogenic diet and to see how we feel, you know, just once again, offering a different option. And, you know, just like you, I, I, I would love to see this, you know, as, as a trial in a, like in a setting to where it could be controlled. Like what if, what if while you're following this, this diet, you know, you're receiving the therapy, you're getting the tools. I would be really curious to see how those people did, you know, versus just the standard treatment. Um, because my experience is similar to yours working in a psychiatric hospital is the food is just very highly processed, lots of sugar, you know, you feed <laughs> a lot of those foods and then it's just, it, and then dosing people with so many medications. I just wonder if an alternative option may not um, have a better result for some people. Yeah, no. And, you know, and to be, so to be honest with you, so that work is even further away, like changing the food in hospitals. It's, a sad state of affairs, but it's similar to changing the food in the school lunches at school. That there are all of these actually government mandates. That they're, they're not even standards, they're mandates that 
the, the, the foods offered need to meet certain criteria and the different types of foods need to be offered. And, um, uh, and so unfortunately those mandates often include a lot of processed foods like, you know, starches and mac and cheese and pizza, mac and cheese and pizza are somehow health foods. Um, and, um, and so offering people, you know, meats and, you know, high fat foods, um, whether they be avocados and, and lean meats, whether they be steak and, you know, or whatever, bacon. Um, yeah, unfortunately, it's, you know, we have these mandates, we have these rules, um, you know, with hospitals, the joint, there's a there's a body called the Joint Commission that mandates. Oh yes, I'm very familiar. <laughs> needs yep. to be offered in the diet, carry menus and stuff. So, I think the first, in my mind, the first step is to get this recognized as one possible treatment, um, kind of like it is for epilepsy. And so, if a if a child goes into a hospital with epilepsy and wants to use a ketogenic diet. Um, they can be offered this as a treatment. It doesn't mean that everybody's getting the same diet. It just means, you know, they're all still getting the Joint Commission diet, but that one child can at least be offered a ketogenic diet. I think in my mind, that's kind of the first step of the way. And, um, you know, and then when that, if that kid goes to school, schools have to make accommodations for medically prescribed diets. And so this would be a medically prescribed diet. Um, but we have to get the healthcare community on board with that. And, and again, the only way to do that is research. So hopefully we'll get there. I've got a quick question, just kind of relative to the setup and, and maybe this is what I should have asked last episode, but didn't think of it, but it's like with the hospital settings where you're kind of like a, you know, stuck with a specific approach, unless I think that Dr. Westman said one kind of way that he's had worked with people to get around would be just to have like food allergy cited. And then you can kind of manipulate your menu a little better because then they just can't give you some of the stuff that you're trying to avoid. Um, but outside of that, is this just a scenario where the hospitals are kind of just terrified of a lawsuit if they deviate outside of uh, the recommendations? And since the recommendations are what they are, that's kind of what they're stuck on at the moment. Yeah, no. So with the Joint Commission, um, hospitals can actually lose their licenses to operate. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not even they're afraid of a lawsuit. It's, they're, they're afraid of being shut down completely. Um, it's that big of a deal. It's that serious. And, um, and so to think about, you know, how do we change that again? I, I, I'm really a big fan. I'm, you know, so a lot of people hear this when I say stuff like this and they just get pissed off and mad. They want to rail against the power. <laughs> we hate everybody. Um, everybody sucks. And, you know, and I understand that. I fully understand that perspective. I understand that frustration. Um, I really want to change things. And, and that means we have to, you know, we can complain and vent, but then we have to like buckle down and tr try to figure out a path like how are we actually going to change this how are we going to move this needle what needs to happen and um and i think there are ways we can change it but that kind of a change is going to be slow going it you know to think about changing the entire menu for all of the patients in the hospital we are many many years if not decades away from that for better or worse 
Um, so I think we just have to start with, let's try to get medically prescribed diets recognized and, um, and then uh, make those medically prescribed diets available to people in different settings like hospitals and schools and, and other things. And, and at the end of the day, the proof will be in the pudding. Because I think if, if we are right, if we're correct, and this, these really are powerful interventions that can change lives, everybody else will see that. You know, everybody yes, else on that yes. unit will see that person getting this medically prescribed diet and see them getting better while everyone else is not getting better. And the nurses and the doctors and the other patients will all start saying, wait, I want what he's got. <laughs> like, like he's, yeah. he's getting better. <laughs> what, yes. are you, what are you doing for him? Is he on a different pill or something? And it's like, no, he's not on a different pill. He's on a dietary intervention. Well, give me that. And, um, and, and then we'll start to really make way. We'll, we'll start to make some gains. Yes, 100%. And I think I, my hope too, and you know, one of the, the hopes of writing the book is if we can get more um, dietitians, more healthcare professionals, um, curious and kind of drop the fear, because there is a lot of still fear mongering around a ketogenic diet. Like I've had several dietitians tell me like, we could never prescribe this, this is very dangerous to your heart or dangerous, you know, so if we can drop the fear to where just when you hear ketogenic diet, you're like, Oh, yeah, that's a treatment. That's a potential treatment for bipolar disorder, depression, like where it's just like kind of a thought like, yeah, let's, let's give this, this is a something that's I'm not afraid of this works, let's give it a try. Because like you said, when people get better, you know, I've had people reach out to me and I'm sure Zach, you have too. And Dr. Palmer, like when you get better, you're like, oh my God, I got to tell everybody, you know, I want to share my story. I've been in this cage of anxiety for decades, for years. I've been, you know, haven't lived my life to the fullest and now I'm a totally different person. So I think, I think, by, I think you're hundred percent right. I think just getting, getting it as an option, getting people to talk about it, getting people to say, this is one of many options. Um, is really going to start to kind of pave the way because yeah, all it takes is if you're struggling with major depression and your friend is struggling with major depression and within weeks or months, they're way better. You're certainly going to be curious about what they're doing. Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, I can tell you from just um, the number of emails and phone calls that I get, um, which for me is really disheartening um, because I'm turning people away right and left. Like I get, you know, very heartbreaking phone calls from people who are desperate, who are just like, you know, I've got and um, I can't help everybody that emails me and calls me and, um, but but what that tells me is, you know, a couple of things. Number one, people really are interested in new ideas and new suggestions, and they're not afraid of a diet, and they're not even afraid of a ketogenic diet, um, number one. And, but it speaks to the bigger problem, which is the, in the mental health field in particular, um, you know, mental health disorders are the leading cause of disability in the world. Um, you know, depression is now the leading cause of disability in the United States and throughout the world. But for people with disorders like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, or even really severe post-traumatic stress disorder, 
the rates of disability can be actually higher than that for major depression. And so, but, but those disorders tend to be less common than depression. So depression is a really common disorder. That's why it's number one. But among people with schizophrenia, it's probably like at least 90% of people with that diagnosis end up disabled um, or at least unable to live life to their fullest. Most of them are not employed full time. Many of them, you know, don't have their own families. A lot of them don't live independently. Um, their lives are essentially ruined. And, and, and I don't say that again, to be mean, I don't say it to be shaming and stigmatizing, but I say it to, to own and acknowledge the reality of how devastating those disorders can be. I mean, people's lives are ruined, decimated. We only get one life. And to be given a life and have it be ruined is just so grossly unfair and unjust. And those people are desperate. They will do anything to try to improve their situation. And, um, and so I am really passionate about trying to develop new options for people. Um, and the ketogenic diet is clearly one of them. Wow. Yeah, I was really surprised to learn when I was doing research and studying your research that um, if you have a major mental illness, you statistically lose about a third of your lifespan. Like most people, like the average age um, in the United States of someone passing away without a mental illness is about 79 years old. If you have a mental illness, I recall it's about between 54 and maybe like 58 years. Like you literally lose a third of your life. And I would argue, as you I'm sure would argue, that the life you have is, is not a very um, happy and not a very, you know, like you said, it's decimated. So. Yeah, it's really interesting. So it depends on what study you look at, but um, one large Medicaid study in six different states looking at people with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and chronic depression found exactly that. One third of their life was lost. Um, but it turns out that we, we just have a, we have a study in the last couple of years, over 7 million people um, in Denmark that every single mental disorder including anxiety disorders, ADHD, every single mental disorder is associated with a reduction in lifespan. Wow. Um, so, uh, and on average, men lose 10 years of life and women lose seven years of life. And again, that goes to ADHD, it goes to autism, it goes, it certainly goes to the serious mental disorders, but it goes to the ones that a lot of people think are just trivial or minor or whatever it um, mental disorders take a toll on people's physical health. Um, and just to clarify, a lot of people think, oh, well, those crazy people are just killing themselves. And that's why, you know, it's a suicide. That's why they're all dying. It's not suicide rates are definitely higher, but they're actually dying of heart attacks and strokes and diabetes and dementia and cancer. Yeah. I was going to actually ask about that. Just, uh, because like when you look at it through that lens, you kind of have the situation where I think most people are thinking this dietary intervention is shown kind of loosely to extend my lifespan by three years or something like that. And when we're looking at that with the average person's lifespan in, in the United States, anyhow, like, you know, that's 
kind of like irrelevant if you're you're in a sub cohort that is going to make it to 60 on average. Now, all of a sudden you're kind of working with a different, different paradigm and maybe how you make your dietary choices. But I suppose if it's uh perhaps it's the, I guess my question is, is it the same kind of outcome just with two thirds of the timeline then would it be like, let's say there was a diet that would be more likely to cause you to die three years early of a heart issue. Is that going to kind of, play into someone who's got a shorter life expectancy just three years earlier, or maybe it would be a percentage less than what they would have made even at that shorter lifespan? It's a really important question. And one that researchers have actually been trying to address for at least 20 years. Um, and at, at this point, we don't have any good answers or solutions. So there's a, um, there's a branch of government called SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse Mental Health um, kind of administration. And they actually funded a study um, a while ago. I think it started in 2007. Um, it was 10 for 10. It was they were going to um, lengthen the lifespan of people with chronic mental disorders by 10 years over the next 10 years. So they did this whole campaign for better or worse, the campaign was based on eat less, exercise more. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, at the end of the 10 year period, the statistics for those with chronic mental illness actually got worse, not better. Um, and uh, that, the, that the shortened lifespan actually got even worse for the mentally ill. And the discrepancy between the mentally ill and those without mental illness was even wider at the end of that 10 year period. So I think it's reasonable to say eat less, move more does not work um, for the mentally ill population. Um, we have pretty good evidence that it doesn't seem to work for the general population. <laughs> and, uh, um, so I think we need new approaches. As you know, with the diet wars, everybody's like ketogenic diet. If these people are gonna die of a heart attack early, you're gonna kill them even faster with a ketogenic diet, an animal-based diet, lots of fat. Oh my God, what the hell are you doing? You're really gonna kill them. And so people, people get outraged about this stuff. They get inflamed and, and it's, it's interesting because you know, some of those people have really good intentions. And you know, some of those people feel like I'm defending the poor mentally ill from you, you keto. <laughs> um, you guys are trying to put your keto diet on these poor, vulnerable, disabled patients, and you're going to kill them even faster. Um, and you know, so there are people out there who are like that, and they're, they're, they are part of the diet wars. And I just want to say, you know, ketogenic diet's been around for a hundred years. We've been using it in the treatment of epilepsy for a long time. We actually do have a reasonable amount of data and studies looking at long-term health effects from the ketogenic diet. And, um, and most recently in terms of diabetes, um, you know, there's a study called the Verda study. It's now in its, I think, third or fourth year they've published data that actually shows the ketogenic diet does overall reduces risk for cardiovascular disease. Overall, if you look at all of the risk markers 
on average, they improve with ketogenic diet. There is one exception and I want to own it and I want to just get out in front of it. It's called LDL. LDL can go up. And just because LDL goes up doesn't mean your risk for a heart attack or stroke goes up. Because if everything else that goes into cardiovascular risk improves, meaning insulin resistance is better, meaning blood pressure is lower, meaning HDL is higher, meaning triglycerides are low, like all of the other markers are better. On average, if you put it into the existing formula by the American College of Cardiology, the risk goes down. And, um, and so I think we just have to own that and accept that. I'm not even gonna get into the war about LDL. Like, fine, if you, if you wanna think LDL is bad for you, go ahead, think LDL is bad for you. Risk can still go down with a low carbohydrate ketogenic diet, even when LDL goes up. So do not let that be the one thing that deters you from trying a ketogenic diet, or at least considering it. And that actually even goes back to kind of what we were talking about earlier too, where it's kind of pigeonholing the ketogenic diet or a low carb diet into this category where it needs to be high in saturated fats and cholesterol, where in reality, you know, like we said, you can follow a ketogenic Mediterranean or vegan vegetarian version of the diet too. And, you know, focus more on like, say like olive oils and things like that. And then for potentially, if you are one of those folks who happens to get, uh, improvements everywhere, but LDL, it seems like you could probably manipulate that if you want to take that next step on top of it too. So it, like, I, cause I, you know, you see the counter arguments as well, where it's like, well, yeah, you did, you improved their, their outcome, but you could have improved it even more by doing <laughs> it. It's always, there's always another inch to take somewhere, right? <laughs> well, and it's interesting too. And I think Dr. Palmer, you, this would be a, such a great segue for our, um, we're going to do one of these on heart disease. And, you know, I cite, we have like six, maybe eight studies where people's LDL was higher. They actually had less risk of dying from like infectious diseases and other things. As long as like you, like you made the point, as long as the other risk factors were low? Like is your blood glucose low and all the other things that a low carb diet can do? It didn't really matter. It actually, you had a, you had a reduced risk of heart disease with the ketogenic diet because of all the other, all the other markers. So context does matter. And like Zach said, there's different ways to do it too, you know, where you certainly could, if you wanted to, you could certainly do avocados or you could do other things. Um, so yeah, but I appreciate you wanting to get out in front of that because I do think we need to talk about these things because there's always the, it seems like, uh, I have a love hate relationship with social media. There's definitely people when you, when you put out, even if you put out a study or clinical trial, there's, there's the, what about, so well, what about this? Well, what about that? You know, it, could, it sometimes has nothing to do with what you're talking about. You could be talking about a high carb diet and well, what about the fact that my car broke down? You know, people like to bitch about all kinds of things, but I do think it's important to address that and talk about that because I do think that is, that is a barrier for people like, oh my gosh, I'm afraid, you know, of a heart disease or, or having cardiovascular disease. So getting out in front of that and saying like, Hey, don't be afraid. Statistically, you actually could, <laughs> you have better markers for preventing cardiac disease with this way of eating. Exactly. And that, you know, it's really interesting. There was just a study that came out in the, um, in the past week that um, it, it was uh, the researchers studied pigs um, but their physiology is close enough to humans that this probably applies to humans as well. And they studied them for over a year. And what they found is that when they 
elevated the blood pressure in the arteries of the pigs, and they artificially elevated the blood pressure, that LDL would accumulate in those arteries and those arteries would become occluded, um, meaning they were at very high risk for a heart attack because the arteries were getting smaller and smaller. And why were they getting smaller and smaller? Because LDL was actually accumulating inside of them. But in the control pigs and in the rest of the pig that didn't have this artificial elevation of blood pressure, LDL was not accumulating in the artery. And so it seems like it has to be that combination of elevation and blood pressure, probably inflammation or um, you know, insulin resistance, that when the arteries are inflamed and have higher pressure, it does seem like they maybe are leaky in a way, if you wanna think about it in that way, they're leaky and the thing that can leak into them is LDL. And that is exactly why this studies, you know, in terms of preventing cardiovascular disease, you know, we have a lot of studies showing that if you can lower LDL, people have improved outcomes. A lot of people debate hotly about how big of an effect that is and whether that's meaningful or not. But I think it speaks a truth that if your arteries are inflamed or, you know, have high pressure, maybe they are allowing LDL to get into them. And that is a bad thing. But if, again, if you don't have those conditions, if you don't have inflammation, if you don't have high blood pressure, LDL, at least in that study, was not getting into the arteries. And so maybe LDL isn't such a big deal after all, unless it's in the right context of a bad situation. Oops, sorry. I think I might've actually muted myself. Um, yeah. uh, no, that's, it's really, it's, it's really interesting stuff. And I think it's like with a lot of this is uh, the context is uh, the context is really, really important. And then everyone's going to be different too. I think that's one thing we've learned with just a lot more essentially like citizen testing of themselves is like, you know, you get the, the group with, with Dave Feldman who, um, you know, the lean mass hyper responders. And, and let's, let's, let's say that, that, that Dave is off and, um, and those folks are like way more at risk. Well, that's one cohort of a group of people who are seemingly eating essentially the same way with, and getting like very different blood marker results for it. So, you know, someone may be able to eat a pattern and go in, get their blood tested and be like perfectly in line with everything where someone does the same thing and go and have like a drastically different outcome. You know, it may just mean that, that, that these two people would need to Think of think of it differently, or how they construct what they're making up their macronutrient ratios out of. Uh, yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, I think I think people need to make decisions about what health markers do they care about, what health markers do they get to worry about. Are they worried about their weight? Are they worried about insulin resistance? Are they worried about blood pressure? Are they worried about triglycerides? Are they worried about LDL? And um, and you can say you're worried about all of them. If you're worried about all of them, that's great. Then pay attention to all of them and find lifestyle changes, whether it's a change in diet, exercise, sleep, stress reduction, whatever. Find lifestyle factors that will improve the markers that you care the most about. And, um, and try to optimize your health 
I mean, those markers are meaningful. Um, you know, leaving aside the LDL, because I know there's a lot of controversy, at least in the low carbon keto community around that. Um, those other health markers are actually very powerful predictors of bad things. Um, blood pressure, HDL levels, triglyceride levels, there's zero, at least in my mind, there's zero doubt. Those are, those are warning signs that something you're doing is not good, is not healthy, and you are on your way to having a heart attack or a stroke. Um, and so we have to pay attention to those markers. They really are meaningful. And, and again, I think if people try different lifestyle interventions and all of those markers improve, then whatever you're doing is I, I, like, I could care less <laughs> what the epidemiologic data says about what it should be doing for you. The proof is always in the pudding. If it's really working for you, then keep doing it. And if it's not working for you, you know, if you're trying a, you know, a carnivore diet and it's not working out for you, a lot of those markers are getting even worse. Then I would say, well, th this isn't the diet for you then, because it's clearly something's not right. And, and we've got to tweak it somehow. Maybe you do need less saturated fat. Maybe you need more plant-based foods. Maybe you need something different. Um, but it's a work in progress. And, uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, it, that's the way I see health is that, you know, we all, we all have to do our best. It's always a work in progress. Things are always changing. The really sad kind of thing is the, the more I work on, the more I work on metabolism and learn about like what I'm trying to do. So I'm, I'm a really big fan of trying to improve people's metabolism. That's kind of a, in a nutshell, that's one thing that I'm trying to do. But I'm also just in a nihilistic way, painfully aware that we all are going to lose that battle. And that means we're all gonna die. Like, and death is the death of metabolism. When, when, we, when we die, it means our metabolism is failing. And no matter what we do, no matter how perfect we try to be, we're all going to lose at some point or another. And, um, and so we have to do our best to, to figure out, well, how do we balance it? How do we optimize our health for today? What, what can we change? People get injured all the time or they have a serious illness that is, was beyond their control and it really sets them back or they get cancer or they, you know, they, all sorts of bad things can happen to people. And, and then you just, you know, it can knock you down. It can set you back. And then you just have to get back on the horse and try to improve your health again. And, um, but it's what we do. <laughs> we, keep, we keep, we keep going. Well, Dr. Dr. Palmer, I would love for you to talk a little bit about the research study you're hoping to fund. And I'm you know, guys, I'm super excited. You know, I just published the book, The Dietitian's Dilemma, where we're you know going through each chapter, and it's on Amazon. It's paperback or ebook, and for every book purchased, ebook or paperback, I'm going to be donating to this uh, Dr. Palmer's research. So, can you talk a little bit about the study you're you're wanting to fund? So, Michelle, thank you so much for uh, for your generosity in doing that. But okay. so the the study that we're hoping to do is on patients with schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, and or bipolar disorder, because those are the chronic disabling disorders for a lot of, for far too many people. And the reality is our current treatments don't work well for them at all. So we're hoping to, 
fund, uh, um, you know, if I get full funding, we're hoping to do a randomized controlled trial where half the patients will get a ketogenic diet, half the patients will get a different diet. Um, one that I, as a researcher, assume is probably not going to help their illness, but we have to have a controlled diet to compare it to. So it would be something like the American Heart Association diet, which will have lots of healthy whole grains. And, um, and uh, um, my guess is that it won't help them, but a ketogenic diet might help them. Ideally, what we would do is um, in addition to putting them on this diet um, and following them probably at least over 12 weeks, just to see if we can get them to do the diet and see if it can have, you know, give it enough time to really work. Um, and we're gonna measure their symptoms to see if their symptoms improve. But ideally we'll, we'll be able to do brain scans before and then right at the end of the treatment, um, as well as blood tests for, you know, inflammatory biomarkers and other things so that we can get um, so we can get data that actually shows number that answers a few questions. One, does this diet actually work? Does it improve symptoms in these people who are suffering? But then if it does, to have those extra tests will be so important and powerful to be able to show that it actually changes their brain function and we can measure that on a scan or to be able to show that it actually changes levels of inflammation that we can measure in the bloodstream. Because if we can get objective biomarkers like that, um, that will go a very long way in the medical community to proving that, wow, this, that intervention actually really did these objective things. And based on all the science, we, we kind of would think that it might improve their symptoms and, oh, you measured their symptoms and they got better too. Wow, now we're really paying attention. And, um, and this would, you know, even if we got the full funding, we're looking for $350,000, which I know sounds like a ridiculously large amount of money. In the grand scheme of research, it's not, unfortunately. That would be the pilot study, the, the pilot randomized controlled trial. The, 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 the definitive study would actually cost millions of dollars. Um, and I know a couple of groups, there's a group in, um, in Ireland that just put in a grant for a $2 million grant um, for actually 2 million pound grant. So it's more than $2 million um, and it was denied. Um, the, the powers that be don't want to fund this research right now. And what they're saying is that we need more pilot data. We need smaller studies to show that this is actually feasible and that it, it might actually work before we're going to pour millions of dollars into the research. So, um, so we're hoping to do this small pilot trial, um, what, what would essentially be a small pilot trial. One of the biggest expenses of the um, of the study, just so people know, is that we're going to provide all of the food and meals to these patients. So people with schizophrenia, for those of you who don't know, most of them are disabled, and they cannot. A lot of them can't even go to the grocery store on their own. Um, most of them would not have the wherewithal to do all of the research that they need to do to be able to figure out meal plans, be able to figure out recipes. Um, most of them are very impoverished. 
because they're on disability. And, um, and so to buy a lot of meat and whole foods and it, it, it is more expensive than buying, you know, a box of cereal. Um, and, uh, and a lot of them can't afford it. So um, that is actually one of the largest expenditures for this trial is to, to be able to make this possible for these people. The other kind of interesting side advantage to that setup, uh, despite the expense, is I think of just if I place myself in that position, if I'm on like a 12-week uh, study and I'm supposed to eat a certain way and I'm just told eat this way, there's always the temptation or the the human error of going and you know blowing up the diet, so to speak. <laughs> Whereas if I'm if I'm presented with that, you don't have a grocery bill for the next twelve weeks, but you have to eat this way. I'm probably going to be a little more incentivized. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And um, so part of the study will actually be you know not only literally kind of spoon feeding them in a way and giving them all that, but we'll have groups um, where everybody will come together and we'll kind of like a Weight Watchers group, only this will be a keto group and they'll be able to support each other, talk through like what's working, what's not working, um, uh, really support each other in their recovery. And, um, and we know that that can go a long way. So cool. Awesome. Well, folks, this one has been a, been a lot of fun to kind of go through some of this stuff. And I'm really excited to to release this one to all the listeners. Uh, is there is there anything else either of you would like to chat about with this topic? Well, I mean, I could go on and on, but I, I respect, um, I know we've gone, a, we've gone a while and Dr. Palmer, thank you again. I'm just grateful for your time. And Zach, thanks always for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. And before we do take off, uh, Dr. Palmer, if you want to share with our listeners where they can find you, if there's links to your website and in in, in donations for that study, uh, I'd be happy to link them in the show notes and share that with the listeners as well. Awesome. So the, um, the easiest way people can see my work and get more information if you want some of these studies is chrispalmermd.com. So chrispalmermd, all one word, dot com. And um, there's, a, um, there's a link. If you're in a position to be able to help support the study, there's a link right on that homepage um, for that study, but there's a lot of free information, um, articles that I've published in both medical literature and um, on Psychology Today. So a lot of it's free and accessible to everyone. If you want to learn more, I have a lot of people, you know, a lot of people, like I said, reach out and say, I want to try this for my son, or I want to try this for my brother or whatever. Um, one really helpful hint is uh, if you go to that website and print out some of those articles, especially the medical ones published in the medical journals and give them to um, the psychiatrist that's treating your loved one um, or your own psychiatrist, if you want to try this, it can go such a long way um, when they see that, oh, this is actually published in legitimate medical journals. Oh, this, now I have to take this seriously. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it can go a really long way. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Palmer. Michelle, you want to share with the listeners where they can find you? Yeah. So I am on Instagram at run, eat, meet, repeat. I'm also on Twitter at um, Michelle Hearn, RD. I've got a website, the dietitiansdilemma.net, and you can get the book on Amazon. Um, it's just called The Dietitian's Dilemma. 
Awesome. Thanks, Michelle. And also side note, I found out as I was putting together the last episode that you have a, a, a nifty little link link <laughs> where if I put one link down, it kind of has like a lot, a lot of different stuff where they can click to, to get to your book, to your social media accounts, uh, your YouTube channel, all that other stuff too. So folks, if you're looking for kind of a one-stop for, for Michelle, you can probably find it there as well. Uh, but uh, thanks to both of you for taking some time out and breaking down this, this chapter of the book. We're looking forward to the, to the next six episodes. Awesome. Thank you, Zach. And thanks, Michelle. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider checking out my website at ZachBitter.com or my social media channels at ZachBitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. You can also support the show by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.